forgive me, this has been a challenging text for me um, because the Lord's been working in me. And so I, I hope, through the grace of God, to be able to communicate His Word accurately, rightly, and powerfully enough in the way that it deserves. All right. We've been going through Genesis. We've been expositing this first book. Um, we've learned a lot of things along the way. We are at now, we're ready for Genesis chapter 17. Um, but you know that day by day, my day job is a, is a teacher. And I've said this before, all good teachers do review. So we're going to run through kind of what we talked about last time, because that has impact, of course, on what we're talking about this time. Um, So let me give you a brief review. But before we do that, let me pray. Father, let me preach today as if I would be gone tomorrow, as if this were the last time that you would allow me. To address your people, let me preach as if I were a dying man. And Father, let me preach to your people as if they were going to die later today. As if they were in, in this place, in the last place that I had the chance to address them. Let me preach as a dying man, preaching to other dying men. Please convey the truth of your word through your Holy Spirit today. I thank you that your word says your word will accomplish what you set it out to do. It will not return to you void. I ask that that would be the reality today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Forgive me. Forgive me for. Let's review. Genesis chapter 16. Let me kind of give you an overview. Sarai knows that God has given Abram a promise to have a child. Actually, not just to have a child, that there would be multitudes that would come through Abram. But they still don't have any. Like any good Baptist, I'm convinced she was a Baptist because she thought through this problem just like a Baptist would. Let's think through this problem and let's totally discount the miraculous, incredible power of God. And let's just look at this rationally. And that's what she does. She realizes she's well past childbearing age. Abram's getting pretty close. She knows God's given us a promise. It hasn't come to pass yet. Obviously, we're going to have to make this thing happen. Getting good Baptist. They have not seen the the promise materialize. There's no way that I can have a child. She's in her 70s by now. So how are we going to get this thing done? How are we going to get this thing accomplished? Because we know it's what God wants to do, and we have to find a rational solution. Like any good Baptist, that's exactly what she does. Can I postulate something crazy to you today? Perhaps God has invested His Word... With power. Perhaps when God says His Word, 
it really will come to pass. Perhaps when God moves, He doesn't need your help nor permission to do it. And perhaps when we decide we're going to help Him out and take matters into our own hands, we will birth an Ishmael. You ever done that? I promise I have. I'd say the first five years of ministry that I did was basically Ishmael Ministries. But but remember this about them as well. She's probably weary of the ridicule and scorn at being childless. Remember that culture placed a very high emphasis on children. And she's childless. And by the way, not only is she childless, so is her husband. Her husband who's named Abram. Which means either exalted father or more likely father of many. Now, how would you like it if you were introducing yourself to people and you said, oh, hello, my name is the father of many. Oh, what a wonderful name. How many? Well, I'm not done living yet. I mean, right? You ever ever ask somebody, that? hey, how's the day been? Well, it's not over yet. Well, none yet. You're the father of many. Well, I mean, I will be someday. Oh, really? How do you know that? Well, God told me. Well, he did. Like, you have a dream? Well, no, God, God actually materialized before me, and I spoke with him face to face. And, and he told me and my wife, who's in her mid-70s now, uh, we're, we're going to be the, the parents of many. What do you think you'd sound like to most people? <laughs> They've done lost their mind. I think she's pretty tired of that. She's probably pretty tired of the ridicule and the scorn. She's probably pretty tired of hearing Abram say over and over, don't you remember God gave us a promise? Yeah, I remember. And it was a long time ago. And it hasn't come to pass. So this is what we're going to do. Like any good Baptist, we're going to make this baby happen. Because there's a lot of things that we are good at. Waiting is not one of them. Being patient and letting God mature and mold us and shape us in the meantime is not one of them. It's not our strong suit. Not my strong suit either. We're going to make this happen, baby. So she comes into Abram, says, look, here's the deal. We've gotten this promise. We're, we're going to be ch- uh, the, the parents, right? We're going to be parents, but I am well past childbearing age. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that Egyptian servant girl that we have because you lied to the king We're going to take her, and I'm going to bring her in here, and she is going to be... I'm going to give her to your embrace. Try to put this in terms that are sensitive to young ears here. Just just in case you're wondering, by the way, there's no universe where that's a good idea. There's not. There's no universe where you go, hey, I know what we'll do. This is how we'll solve our family problems. I'll share my wife or I'll share my husband with another person. It's going to work out fantastic. There's no universe where that happens, and it's exactly like that. So she tells, whose plan was it, by the way? Sarai's. It's not Abram's plan. Okay, Sarai hatches a plan. Here's how we're going to make this happen. We're going to make this thing that God has said is going to pass. We're going to make it come to pass. We're going to make it happen. We're going to take action, like, you know, any good Baptist, right? You've heard this. Go take action. Sometimes God's action is patiently waiting. I will mature you while you patiently wait. That, that We don't like that. Is there, it, there's got to be something else involved. I don't like the mundane of life. 
tough rocks. God says this, you're going to have a child. I'm going to make it happen. I'll get back to you when it's time. Let's make this thing happen. So Sarai hatches a plan. Tells her husband to go in and have physical relations with her Egyptian, Egyptian servant girl. Okay. I also like to point this out, and I think it's important to point out. We should point out that Abram having two wives is a biblical exercise in descriptive morality, not prescriptive morality. The Bible is not saying it's a good thing to be a polygamist, okay? It is not laying its thumb stamp of approval on the practice. It is describing something that did actually happen in history. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. The Bible records that many kings of Israel had multiple wives, but it doesn't give the thumb stamp of approval to that kind of morality ever. It is descriptive, okay? Now, here's the weird twist of irony. Sarai hatches a plan, and guess what? It works. Hagar gets pregnant. Then what happens? Think about it from Hagar's point of view. Hagar is young, pretty, and pregnant. And she's one of Abram's wives, too. So the young, pretty, and pregnant wife, what do you think she thinks of the old, barren wife? Well, the Bible says she despised her, but that's actually a Hebrew euphemism. The, the Hebrew word actually means she, she became small in her eyes. What do, you, what do you do with something that's small? You look down on it. Hey, she's of inconsequence. She's not, even, she's not even consequential. Think about this picture. It's me and it's Abram. I'm the young one, I'm the pretty one, and I'm the pregnant one. I am carrying, in her mind, the promised child. Who are you? What's there I do? I can't believe you, Abraham. May my wrong be upon you. Time out. Whose plan was this? Sarai's. Now Sarai's mad because the plan worked. Have you ever had that? I'm going to tell you this. I have. I've had that, right? You get that and you're like, you know what? I just, this is what I need. This is going to revolutionize my life. I just need that new job. I'll find that one and, and people are going to, they're going to recognize me for the superstar that I am and they're going to finally pay me for what I'm worth and I'm going to enjoy every day there, every moment there. By the way, if, if that's what you're thinking about some job or some career, you are living in a fantasy. People pay you to do work they don't want to do or they cannot do. Okay, just, just throwing that out there, okay? There's no job out there that every day is just, ah, oh, kumbaya. It's not going to happen. So here's what happens. You do that. Oh, I'm going to get that. And so you do. You move everything. Hey, you, you move, maybe you even move where you live because you're going to get this new job, this new opportunity, this new whatever. And you get a month or two into it. And what do you find out? That same kind of nasty people work here as the last place. They don't pay me what I'm worth. I figured out what I'm worth on my time. I'm not getting paid enough. Listen, people go a lot farther than that. You know what I really need? I need a new marriage. Because my wife, she just doesn't respect me the way I should be respected. My husband just doesn't love me the way I should be loved. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make it happen. And you're going to find out that road has a lot of brokenness in it that you did not figure into the equation just like Sarai. Sarai comes back and says, I can't believe this is what's happened. Well, it was your plan. You decided to take matters into your own hand and it worked. And now you're mad that your plan actually succeeded. 
Because it brought brokenness you didn't see. There are parts of the equation you couldn't figure in. There's an X and a Y variable in here that you didn't plug in. You know that's what she's doing. Recalculating. This is not working. So what does she do? Well, like any good believer in God, what's what she do? Treats Hagar with love, respect, and kindness, and wins her over by the tantamount of her testimony, right? Mm -mm. She gets so angry, she begins to treat Hagar. I don't know how badly she must have treated Hagar, but I know this. It was badly enough that Hagar, who is pregnant with child, decides, I'm going to flee back home to Egypt across the desert while I'm pregnant. So it must have been pretty bad. She gets out into the desert, and guess what? She has an encounter with God. <clears throat> and what does God tell her? And I told you this last week, or last time I preached, I told you this is the part you're not going to like. Hagar is being mistreated for something that is not her doing. She had no choice to come along with Abram and Sarah from Egypt. She was given as a gift by the king, by the pharaoh. She had no choice. She became the wife. Of Abram, she became pregnant through that, became a mother. All of that was not her doing. And then she is persecuted because it happened. She gets out into the desert. I don't know what I'm doing here. Why am I here? I've got to flee. I'm coming right. The, the, the Lord appears to her. A Christophany appears to her and says, where have you come from and where are you going? Right. And she says, look, I, I got to flee because my mistress, she, she basically, she hates me. She treats me badly. I'm out of here. And what is God's remedy? This is the one that we hate. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and submit yourself to her. Well, that was the people that was treating me bad. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to change the situation and I'm going to change the situation by changing you. That ain't very fun. That's not what we want to hear. We want to hear, well, here's what we want to hear when we're in that situation. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rain down fire from heaven and consume them. Then I'm going to put up some billboards and let everybody know that you have been justified because you have been maligned and mistreated. You who are so righteous. That's what we want. Let's be honest. The problem is you're not righteous. You're also a sinner. And those people that have treated you badly, you've probably treated poorly as well. And if you haven't treated them poorly, there's probably others around you you've treated poorly. There's not probably others around you you've treated poorly. There are others you've treated poorly. But Hagar does that. What does she do? She obeys. In the toughest, hardest of situations, Hagar obeys. If we could just be Christians like that. She obeys. She goes back. Obviously, something must have changed because she goes back and says, communicates to them somehow. Hey, I met with God and I was crying out to him and he heard my cry and he told me I was pregnant with a boy, which, by the way, she had no way of knowing. Obviously, in those days, you didn't go in and get an ultrasound. Right. Oh, I had an ultrasound in the desert. Going to have a boy. No, she says, I, I, I met with God and uh, he, he said, I'm going to have a boy. Oh, what else did he say? He said, I'm supposed to come and. Submit to you. Well, they must have believed it because Abram doesn't name the boy his, some, his own name or imagination. He actually takes what she says, what Hagar says, and names the boy Ishmael, which means 
He hears, or God hears. God heard my cry. I'm going to name this boy Ishmael, which means he hears. That is where we're at the end of chapter 16. Okay? When chapter 17 opens up, we have to remember it's been 13 years since that happened. Sometimes we miss that because, you know, it's just the next line in the Bible, right? 13 years have gone past. Ishmael has grown up in that culture 13. You're now a man. You're a young man. Still got a lot to learn, but you are a man. You're no longer a boy. You're accountable to the laws of the land. You're accountable to the authorities of the land. It's been 13 years. Ishmael's now a teenager. He's 13, right? 12, 13, somewhere now. 99-year-old Abram is about to be raising a teenager. Just, just let that sink in. <laughs> well, teenagers, they're trouble. Yeah? How about if you're 99? How's that, how's that game of baseball going? Give me the ball. Right? He's raising a teenager. His wife, Sarai, is now almost 90. You might notice that is past childbearing age. That is not the time when you're deciding to start your family. Okay, I take a lot of pot shots because we were so old when we started our family. All right, my first child was born when I was, I guess, 35. I'm 40 now. I have four children that are five and under. If you'd like to know what the circus looks like, just come out anytime you like. Okay, just look at the window. Don't, you don't even have to come in. Just be a viewer at the window. This is good. Bring me popcorn, right? That's what's going on. It's been 24 years since God first gave the promise to Abram. 24 years. I got a question. Has God spoken some things into your heart? Has it been a while? Sometimes God will let that just fester, just marinate. Will you still trust Him? Will you still follow him? Will you follow him either way? Will you still follow God when you feel like you've been promised one thing and you don't see it? Will you still follow God? They went through some tough times. And what's the first thing that happens when God shows up again to Abram? It's been 13 years. It's been 24 years since first the promise. What does now he say? Let's start, 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I don't know if I'll get past this. Because there's so much packed into that. Remember we talked about the law of first mentions. The law of first mentions is not a law. It's really more of a principle. It says this. A lot of times when an author introduces a term... He gives us some very important details about that term. That does not mean every time, but it does happen a lot. It's a principle. And biblical, by the way, biblical literature is no different. A lot of times, the first time we see a term or a figure, we're given very relevant details about it, right? The first time that we see Satan, what are we told about him? Well, he's more crafty or subtle than any beast of the field. Very important for us to know. This is one of his defining characteristics. Well, this is a new term here as well. This is the first time we are introduced to one form of God's name. I am Almighty God. That is El Shaddai. Here's what R.C. Sproul has to say about this term. Quote, 
Of many Hebrew names for God that have been transliterated into the English language and used in Christian worship, El Shaddai is certainly among the best known. Literally, this name means God Almighty, and it's among the most frequently appearing names for the God of the Bible. However, a better foundational meaning of El Shaddai may be, quote, the overpowerer, which emphasizes God's power to achieve all of his purposes. The word Shaddai comes out of a Hebrew word that means to display power, to destroy, or to overpower. Why does God tell Abram, I am El Shaddai? Think about where Abram's at. God's about to tell him, hey, buddy, you and your wife are going to have a baby. It is obvious that it's in some sense or form or fashion, you, I, when I told you that to begin with, you knew what I meant, right? I mean, he didn't walk around telling people, hey, uh, my, my wife, uh, my, my wife, my slave girl that I'm going to have here in a while, we're going to be, we're going to be parents. No, he knew when God told him, you and your wife, you're going to have a baby, you're going to have a child, I'm going to make nations through him, I'm gonna, he's going to be the father of many. He knew exactly what that meant. But then he gets to rationalizing a little bit. Well, it couldn't. Maybe, maybe she's right. Maybe my wife is right. Maybe, maybe it's not going to be through her. Maybe it's going to be through. Maybe it's going to be through the slave. Maybe it's going to be through slave. Yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. Sure, that's rational. No, you knew what I meant when I told you, and now you're just having trouble believing that I, God, can cause a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman to have a baby. Why is that relevant to you at all as a Christian? Because you can get yourself into situations that you think you are not redeemable from. You don't understand how long I fought with alcohol. I literally had this conversation this week. You don't know how long I have drank. You don't know how long I've fought with alcohol. I don't know if I can overcome it. Newsflash, you can't. But El Shaddai can The God who is the overcomer, who is the overpowerer, is well able. He can raise the dead with a word from his voice. He can cause 90-year-old people to have babies. And he can certainly defeat alcoholism in your life. He can defeat sin in your life. He can defeat the problems that you're having. My marriage is just beyond saving. No, it's not. He is El Shaddai. He is the overcomer. He's the overpowering one. You're not. The problem is we think we should save ourselves. That is word of faith, nonsense theology. It is heretical. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself from any sin. Never mind a sin nature. You are not able. Stop trying. Let me give you just part of my testimony. That's what happened to me. I became an alcoholic. I was an alcoholic by the time I was 19. That was my way of dealing with a lot of internal turmoil that I was having. I was going through a lot of struggles. I had a lot of pain because of a lot of things I'd gone through in the past. And the way that I dealt with it was I'll just stay numb. I'll just stay numb by just staying drunk. And so I did. I started most of my breakfasts were whatever I was having for breakfast that morning and a solo cup of whiskey. And then when I get back home, I'd keep drinking beer. And that, that was basically what I did. That was my day. Just stay drunk. Then on the weekends, I'd really get drunk. But that was how I could 
stay numb. And finally, the Lord starts working on my heart. But here was my thinking. My thinking was, well, Christians are those people that are good people. So what I've got to do is I've got to clean myself up so I can be a Christian. So guess what I tried to do for four months? I'm going to quit drinking. A buddy of mine had challenged me. Hey, I think you're alcoholic. No, I'm not. I'm not alcoholic. I can quit anytime I want. Okay, quit then. Well, I found out I couldn't quit. I realized alcohol had me. Now what? Well, I've got to, I've, got, I've just got to, I've got to summon up the power to change myself. That is the anti-gospel. Not only is that not the gospel, that is what Paul says must be repented of. You must repent from yourself Righteousness. You cannot write yourself. I can too. I'll think myself up. I'll, I'll just pull myself up by the bootstraps. We love that kind of stuff because we're Americans. We're very pragmatic. We like the rags to riches story. And we think if we work hard enough, we can do anything in life. Now, I've got news for you. It doesn't work that way with sin. Because sin is not an external problem. It's an internal problem. The sin in your life does not come because you're surrounded by bad people or you were raised in a bad environment. And that's the nonsense that gets told to you from the time you're, you know, old enough to hear it all the way through school. Well, you know, when you see somebody, if they're really a bad person, if they're behaving this way, it's because of how they were raised. They were raised in that really poor environment. Newsflash. Nobody's raised in a perfect environment because nobody's raised in an environment without sin. And it is not the environment that's making them sin. It is the sin within them. What is making me do that? Why am I an alcoholic? Because there's sin in your heart. Why am I struggling with this sin? Because you love it. But I don't want to. Ah, now you're on the path. I don't want to love that. Ooh. Sounds like the Lord's doing a work in your heart then. How could I get out of alcoholism? I tried to clean myself up for four months. Try to clean myself up, not just from alcoholism. There's lots of other stuff I was trying to clean up, too. And what I found out was I'd try to clean up, and two days later, I'd fall back in that same mess. And I'd try to clean up, and I'd fall back in the same mess. And finally, I got to the point that I literally laid down one night and said, God, if you're real, if you really are the God of the Bible, if Jesus Christ is real, rescue me. Because I can't do it, and I'm tired of fighting. And I'm not going to fight anymore. It's rescue me or I'm going off the deep end because I'm just tired. I'm tired of trying to clean me up and failing. I'm tired of fighting with this and failing. And you know what Jesus said? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? Because he's the one doing the work. It is him that's going to work in you both to will and do to his good pleasure. You cannot do to his good pleasure. You cannot work in you to his good pleasure. Jesus Christ can work in you to his good pleasure. How can you defeat alcoholism? By Jesus Christ changing your heart. How can, you, how can you defeat fornication, adultery, pornography, whatever sin it is that you're dealing with? By Jesus Christ changing your heart. You don't do it by working yourself up and just working hard enough to come out of it. Jesus Christ must be at the bottom. He must be at the root. He is El Shaddai. Interestingly enough, what book of the Bible do you think the term El Shaddai appears in the most? I'll tell you this before I research. I thought it was Psalms. I thought for sure it's going to be the Psalms. It wasn't. There was a book that outranked it. The book of Job. 
Why? Well, it's a book of loss, of trial, sorrow, grief. It's about a man being broken, absolutely broken. Why would El Shaddai be in this book about a man who's absolutely broken? Because when you're broken, that's who you'll need. When you get to that place that I got to, at least, you need the all-sufficient one, the all-powerful one, the conqueror. He's able to overcome whatever sin or whatever trial he decides to. God, I'm in this mess and I don't know how to get out. Good, you're at the perfect place for you to be. How did I get here? Maybe God's let you get there so that you'll finally listen. Maybe God's let you get to this place of trial or brokenness or sorrow to show you you cannot save yourself. You cannot get yourself out of it. God, I'm so far out here in the sea. I'm so lost. You can't even throw a lifeline to me. That's where you need to be. Because when you get there, maybe you will finally cry out to him. You know, I struggled with that for four months so that I could get to the place. God could bring me to the place where I went. I cannot save myself. I cannot clean myself up. And God goes, finally, I'm trying to show you this. Why? So that I will reach out to the only one who can. If that's you, reach out to the only one who can. I'm in this, you don't even know what place I'm in. I'm in a place of brokenness. I'm in a place of darkness. Listen to me. When you get to that place where the darkness comes around you at night and it envelops you so thick it's like a blanket you can wear, you've got to know El Shaddai is there. I can't feel him. It's not about your feelings. It's about his integrity. He's there whether you notice it or not, whether you can feel it or not, whether you have a big experience or not, whether the lights come on and a beam from heaven comes down or not. He is there. Let me go on. He says this to Abram. I am almighty God. I'm El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. Here's the problem. We see that and we think, okay, there's God. He is the all-powerful all-knowing one, and if I want to be in a relationship with him, I have to walk before him without sin. That is not what that means. Walk before me and be blameless is a Hebrew euphemism. Okay, It's an idiom. It's a saying. It's a cultural saying. It means, by the way, the word blameless does not mean without sin. It means whole. Walk before me holy, not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-E. W-H-O, you know, anyway, you know, whole, wholesome, wholeness, holy, whole, H-O-L-L-Y. Okay. Why? Why is he saying that? What he is saying here is this, Abram, I am the all-sufficient one. I am the all-powerful one. I am the overcomer. I want all of you. I'm not asking you to be without sin. I'm asking you to follow me with your entire heart. Not a little bit. That's what we want to do naturally as humans. I'll follow God this far, but not this far. I'll go to church on Sunday you know, because I'm a good person. That's not what God is asking for. That's not what Christ is asking for. That's the whole reason that we have baptism, by the way. God is asking for all of you. By the way, the Bible says if you are born again in Christ, you're of the same faith as Abraham. 
What is that? What does that look like? What does that mean? That's exactly what God was saying to Abram. Here's what I want from you. I'm going to make my covenant with you. I want all of you. I don't want part of you. I don't want Sunday devotion. I don't want twice a week. I want to be the main thing all the time. I am what your life will revolve around. You will walk before me, before my face, and I will own you. I will be your everything. That's a lot. That is what the word blameless means here. It doesn't mean without sin. You will never be without sin. The Bible says, he who says he's without sin is a liar and the truth's not in him. You're never going to be without sin this side of glory, period. There is no way for you to walk in front of God blamelessly. If the word means without sin, you will sin. I hope you will not willfully sin. I hope you will walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. Because if you're not, I wonder whether you've been born again. But it does mean this. You must be wholehearted in your devotion to God. We might translate it like this. Walk before me with a heart that is fully devoted and loyal to me above all else. I don't want part of you. I want all of you. Proverbs 2, 7 says, God is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. What does that mean? God is a shield to those who walk off after him wholeheartedly. And that, by the way, that really gets to the heart and ordinance of baptism. That's what baptism is. What is baptism? It is an outward sign of you dying and being raised to newness of life. What does that mean? You've died to yourself. That means you died to your own selfish ambitions. It means you died to your old selfish goals. You have one ambition now and one only, and that is to follow Jesus Christ wherever that road may lead. It does not mean that Jesus is going to come alongside you and go, oh, that's what you want to do? Let me make sure that your goals and your dreams and your ambitions get fulfilled. No. It means... God will probably take those things that are your great goals and dreams and aspirations and ambitions and put them to death straightway. Because we're going to find out whether you've got an idol in your heart or not. And a lot of times the idol that's in our heart is a future version of us. Here's what I want to make sure. I'm going to get my life crafted so that in 10 years, this is who I am. And Jesus says, will you follow me either way? Look, I'm, I'm not telling you or angry with you if you're successful, you have a great career. I'm glad the Lord's blessed you that way. But I am telling you this. If you make that thing an idol in your heart, I promise God will put a knife through it. I promise. He will slay every idol. What is your baptism? Your baptism was death to your old self. Raised in newness of life to follow wholeheartedly after Christ. Seventeen two, <laughs> verse two. No problem. No problem. Thirty minutes in, we've made one verse. Seventeen two says this, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. 
the irony of this in Hebrew is rich. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Remember, this is the man that has one child and he's past childbearing age. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make nations of you and kings, plural, shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant. How long is this covenant going to last? Forever. Jesus is not changing his mind. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. You'll be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It is a sign of the covenant. It is not the covenant itself. Just throwing it out there. Back up to verse 2, 17, 2. And I will make my covenant between me and you. Who's going to make this happen? I will make. I will make my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. I'll multiply you exceedingly. Remember, this is the guy that is introducing himself as the father of many. And God changed his name. No longer are you the father of many. Now you're the father of many nations. <laughs> the irony's rich. Lord, I got one, I got one kid. <laughs> yeah. You're not just the father of many, buddy. You're the father of many nations. <laughs> ah, this isn't going to go well at the coffee shop, is it? Why is he telling him that? Because he's letting him know, God, uh, Abram, I haven't forgotten anything. I will make this covenant between me and you. Hey, pal, I don't need your help. I will make this covenant. Your rationalism is not helping me. I will do it. God reminds Abram again of his original promise. God had not forgotten anything, even though it had been almost 25 years. You think it seemed to Abram that God had forgotten about him? You ever think that? Hey, God, I'm over here. I'm ready. I'm ready to do your work. Hey, put me up there. Give me that platform. Get that big platform. Ready to do what you told me to do. I'm ready to be the big guy, big shot, big guy in charge. Why's that not happening? I already told you, God. Done told you. I'm ready. You, did you forget? Hey, God, did you forget? I thought you called me in a ministry. Did you forget where I was at? Here I am. And forget. He's teaching you. Here's what Spurgeon has to say on this issue. Quote, all these 13 years, so far as Scripture informs us, Abram had not a single visit from his God. We do not find any record of his either doing anything memorable, nor having so much as a single audience with the Most High in all of those years. But Abram was becoming a great man of faith. Yet you don't make a great man of faith overnight. It takes years of God's work in them, years of almost mundane trusting in God, perhaps interrupted with a very few spectacular encounters. What's Spurgeon say? Uh, he's making him into a great man of faith. How can he be making him into a great man of faith? It's all just the rigmarole, just the run of the mill. It's just life. It's mundane. Yep. And that's where he teaches you how to be 
a great person of faith. No, 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 I need a platform. Put me out there. I'm ready to preach to the nations. Really? How many of your coworkers did you tell the gospel to? Well, I mean, that I work with those guys every day. That doesn't count. Really? I mean, your family did you share the gospel with? How about your children? How about your wife? Well, I mean, I mean, that's that's kind of a different deal. Really? No, it's not a different deal. That's where you learn how to truly be a person of faith. Why? I'm going to share this gospel, and I'm going to risk alienating the people that I love the most. I'm going to risk alienating the friends that I spend the most time with because I'm willing to share the gospel. That's what it means to be a person of faith. That's what it means to follow God wholeheartedly. It's not just the big encounters. It's not just when you get invited to preach at the big camp. It's will you follow him day in, day out in the mundane things. God reminds Abram that he has never left. My covenant is with you, 17.4 says. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. He's telling this, Abram, I never left I hadn't heard from you so long, so we just decided to do this. Why did you decide to do that? I hadn't heard. I was afraid you left me. I never left. My covenant is with you. It's not behind you. And by the way, it's not out in the forefront somewhere, some down, you know, some way down the line, out in front of you in some blissful, long-off future. No, his covenant is with you. He is with you now, here, always. He has not ever uh, left you. No, he's never forsaken you. He has promised not to do so. Yeah, but sometimes I don't feel it. I don't feel like I'm moving where I'm supposed to move. I don't feel like I'm getting where I'm supposed to get to. I'm not getting there quick enough. I got to find a new way. Have fun birthing Ishmael. Enjoy the 13 year trip. You understand. Got to make it happen because God's forgotten about me. He doesn't know where I'm at. Don't you see? I'm getting older. My, my time, I'm not as young as I used to be. He is El Shaddai. He is not concerned with you aging a little bit. Spent my best years. Do you think he's decided to put you on the shelf because you're too old? Did you not read of Abram? Who became a parent at 99, raising a newborn at 100 years old. He is El Shaddai. And he will move you where he wants to move you. And he will place you the places he wants to place you when he is good and ready. And you can decide that you're going to fight that tooth and nail. Go for it. (laughs) Kick against the goads. (laughs) That's all. Kick against the goads. He's not left you. He's not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. He's not thrown you away. He is still working in you to will and do to his good pleasure. When you cannot feel it, he is still working in you to will and do to his good pleasure. When you're not aware of it, he is still working in you to will and do to his good pleasure. When you're at work and you're doing the mundane things of life, hey, I just got to do this job because this is how I'm feeding my family. He is at work in you. 
both to will and do to his good pleasure. When you get home and you're tired and the little kids want to wrestle with you and they break your watch and they do all kinds of other stuff. And you think, what in the world is going on? He is at work in you, both to will and do to his good pleasure. But those are just the mundane things of life. That is where he trains you. It's not mundane when it's for his glory. I really want to get into some other stuff, but I don't have time. So let's, let's do this. If you are like I was, um, maybe like Sarah, you made a plan. You made a plan and it worked. And you found out it wasn't as good a plan as you thought it was. Or you're like Abram. You get way out there and you go, man, I, I do not know. I don't even how how is this going to, I can't even see this ever happening. I've, God's forgotten about me. Nobody cares. I'm struggling. Nobody cares. There is one that does. There is a God who sees every struggle you have. He sees every broken part of you. And he still loves you. And he is El Shaddai. You don't overcome your sin. He does. You don't overcome your brokenness. He does. Let's pray. Father, remind us, Lord, again, that there is no hope found anywhere but in you. There is one name under the sun, Lord, that can be an all-sufficient Savior. There is one who can rescue us, and only one, and that's Christ. Father, I ask that we would look toward him, that you would change our hearts. Let us realize that we cannot change ourselves, that we need you. We can't fix ourselves or our brokenness or our broken lives, but that we need you. You are the El Shaddai. You're the overcomer, the conquering one, the powerful one. And you're well able. I thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.